Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Bringing Carol to the big screen, the beautiful tale of forbidden love, screenwriter Phyllis Naj on this episode of Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Welcome to the show. It took almost 20 years to get Carol to the big screen, but I have to say it was worth the wait. From script to direction to acting to production design, it really is a masterful love story. Carol is adapted from Patricia Highsmith's very early novel, The Price of Salt. Highsmith is probably most known for her book, Strangers on a Train, and the talented Mr. Ripley, to name a few. The Price of Salt is set in 1950s New York, and the lesbian romance was based on experiences in Highsmith's own life and originally published under a pseudonym. In the film, Therese, Heisman's alter ego, is played by Rooney Mara, a department store clerk who falls in love with Carol, a wealthy and much older married woman played by the almost otherworldly Kate Blanchett. Dearest, there are no accidents, and everything comes full circle. No explanation I offer will satisfy you. You seek resolutions because you're young. But you will understand this one day. How many times have you been in love? <laughs> you're always the most beautiful woman in the room. Therese Balavet. Carol. Tell me you know what you're doing. I never did. And then it changed. She's still my wife. I love her. I can't help you with that. It shouldn't be like this. I know. The director, Todd Haynes, has often focused on stories about women, who in their own ways rebel against the norms and restraints of their time. But the real champion of this film is screenwriter and playwright Phyllis Naj, who critics and moviegoers agree has done a superbly beautiful adaptation. Phyllis Naj and Patricia Highsmith were friends for many years, and Naj has worked for two decades to get Carol to the big screen. 
Ms. Naj, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Congratulations on the movie and all the nominations coming in from Golden Globes. And, and I was so pleased the other day that your phone was on, um, not on flight mode when you won the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Screenplay because your tweets <laughs> from the plane were just priceless. <laughs> you were so happy. Oh, <laughs> God. I, well, I never... I never keep my Wi-Fi on, on planes, but uh, it was a particularly turbulent flight, and flying doesn't please me in general. So I thought, well, I'll put on some Wi-Fi and, and, and maybe catch up on some email. And the first thing I was hit with was, um, you know, the, the New York Film Critics Circle. And I thought, oh, just there is a reason for a turbulent flight. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you won Best Screenplay. Yeah. Yeah, I think we won quite a lot of them, yeah. And Best Picture, too, on that one and, and all kinds of nominations. So. Yeah, and I think uh, Ed for his uh, beautiful cinematography and director as well. Um, I want to talk a little bit later about the 20-year journey that it's been for you um, with Carol. But but if I could start a little bit at the beginning. You knew Patricia Highsmith. You met when you were a researcher at the New York Times doing a piece. Could you just describe her a bit at that point? Yeah. Well, she was at that point in her 60s, um, I guess in her mid-60s, and, um, uh, and also by that time, I suppose, had... Um, um, accumulated quite a reputation for being formidable and grumpy and <laughs> and snappish. <laughs> and so uh, the the person I met uh, on that day was was quite reticent and moody. That seems pretty clear. But she was also um, funny in a in a mischievous way. She was a very mischievous person. Uh, Pat Highsmith, um, although she did not suffer fools gladly at all. Um, once you were, you were, um, I don't know, once she made her unfathomable decisions about who was worth spending a little time with, and if you were on the good end of that, <laughs> you were in. And, and she was absolutely charming um, and, um, and, and challenging. I think people can be both of those things um, quite oh, absolutely. Easily. Those are the best people. Yeah, yeah. And and then you had a friendship for for some years until she until she passed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, at first, I lived in New York where I met her, and she was living in Switzerland by that time. And in the process of building um, and designing, actually, what would become her her last home. But we we had a correspondence for a few years. Every week, um, we'd write letters to each other. And I miss the days when, when people actually communicated by letter rather than, than telephone, which, I mean, I'm not sure why people didn't do it as late as the 80s, but perhaps it was because, well, there were no cell phones and, and there were only these monolithic telephone companies um, who could charge you what they wanted basically. Right. And so people resorted to letters and, and, uh, and not emails. Not to, and, and there was a great um, pleasure, at least that I took, in um, being able to sit down and actually um, relate the events of, of a week or, or a day or two weeks. And then 
uh, I moved to London in early 1992, and the letters continued, but we were we saw each other um, much more often then, because, of course, as you know, it's easier to travel in Europe between countries uh, than it is, you know, to do that transatlantic thing. And it continued until she, I mean, she became pretty seriously ill, I think, not that long after I met her. But, you know, as with everything else, she was a bit like her cat, you know, kept everything um, (laughs) pretty much uh, a a secret until it could be kept a secret no longer. So as a screenwriter, you were tasked or you you took both adapting the novel, but also writing a quite, this was a quite personal story for her and you were friends. How was that? Well, in some ways it was, you know, an accident of um, fate that, this project didn't actually come along until two years after she died. Um, I don't know what I would have done had she been alive. Mm-hmm. Um, she was quite anti every one of the ad- screen adaptations she'd seen of her work. And justifiably, even if the films were great, such as with Strangers on a Train, because yeah, you know, they they changed the nature of those books in in making certain decisions, and so who knows? I, I might not have ever done it had she been alive. Although she was really quite um, interested in me one day tackling one of her books. Is one of the things that happened when I knew her mm-hmm. was that my own writing career as a as a dramatist in England really took off, and she was very pleased and encouraging about that. So, you know, I don't know. And I don't know what she would think of Carol. I would hope she would see that it was, you know, uh, retained the important qualities and the intent of her, of her novel. And I know she would have loved Kate Blanchett. Um, I mean, (laughs) nothing to do with her acting. (laughs) Just that is, that is her cat's type. So I'm sure she would have been very pleased. Have you sort of added more elements of her and Therese? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, because that, that was one. Uh, Therese is obviously the, the alter ego of the, of the author, uh, both from what we know about the writing of The Price of Salt uh, to, to the clear, strange ways in which Therese relates to the world, almost as a sort of um, savant in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was all pat, but I could, you know, absolutely had great pleasure in putting words I thought Pat would say into Therese's mouth. For example? Well, the way that she would refer to, uh, you know, Pat, she's not interested in, you know, people, she's interested in objects and, <laughs> and, um, she, she's always interested in, in, in in saying exactly what's on her mind, mm-hmm. regardless of the uh, ramifications and, and the context or the, or the audience to which she's speaking, um, just odd bits of cadence, things like that, that, you know, I, I had a great deal of fun observing, but, you know, virtually no one else, unless they knew Pat, would, <laughs> would probably pick up on. So I'm sure you thought it was a man who sent you back your gloves. I did. Thought it might have been a man in the ski department. I'm sorry. No, I'm delighted. I doubt very much I would have gone to lunch with him. 
Oh, your perfume. Yes. It's nice. Thank you. Harge bought me a bottle years ago, before we were married, and I've been wearing it ever since. Harge is your husband? Mm-hmm. Well, technically, we, we're divorcing. I'm sorry. Don't be. And do you live alone, Therese Balavet? I do. Well, there's Richard. He'd like to live with me. Oh, no, it's nothing like that. I mean, he'd like to marry me. I see. And would you like to marry him? Well, I barely even know what to order for lunch. You change the perspective a bit in the novel. Uh, Carol's a bit more of a complex character. Am I correct in, in your telling of it? Um, well, I think what's different is that the novel um, has a very elusive, shifting point of view, but not in a, a traditional sense. It's really Therese's point of view. But sometimes it seems as if we're getting a sort of stream of consciousness a monologue <laughs> from Therese's uh, psyche about, oh, how she feels about Carol and and, and and falling in love and all of that. And at other times, she seems to be a third-person narrator sitting on her own shoulder, kind of <laughs> um, narrating, not always reliably, um, the events of the novel. So, for instance, we, we only hear about Carol's life through the lens of Therese, Therese's eyes, right? And even the quite large events, um, the custody problems, etc. I mean, we're pretty much told about them. You know, we had a problem. Carol had a problem more. And so what was great about being able to um, create a life for Carol out of the shards of um, Therese's memories or, or Therese's um, take on the events that was one of the great joys of the adaptation because in a movie, obviously you can't have, um, unless it's a very peculiar movie, it, you can't just have a, a, one character's point of view in voiceover right, right. and seeing a shadow of a character in the book. It's terrific because we get to project whoever, whoever we want as Carol. We all, we all get our own Carol. <laughs> ghost of your love or something like that. Yeah, I understand. That. Yeah, which is, I suppose is the point, but but obviously there was always going to be a real flesh and blood representation of that um person. And um and so that was that was the that was one of the great challenges of it and the other great challenge of it was to make sure that Carol was empathetic. Um not necessarily sympathetic um, none of us really gave a hoot about that because we understand that what's going on in that story is completely relatable if you're living and breathing or have a pulse. But really, so that people um, did not turn away from Carol in in the sense that she has a very uh, difficult path to negotiate through the events of her life, which I'm trying not to say anything about, lest 
people haven't seen the movie. No, she's completely human. That's what's so wonderful, I have to say, about... It may sound weird for the listeners. I try to explain it, but but it's the least irritating love story I've seen. There's no, there's no 15 minutes of <laughs> anguished exposition about being, you know, gay yeah. or married or, or, or the age difference. It's completely sort of free of guilt. You yeah. just get to see there uh which which i I suppose that the novel is very very much as well yeah um did the producers or did during any time during these 15 years did anyone ask you to say we we want you to to have a little bit of anguish in there i think that early on there might have been i mean uh the, the the set of producers that actually ended up um getting the film made of course are different producers um because when when things take this long um, everyone from producers to actors to directors, potential partners, you know, they, they take, they have to take other work. Um, so yes, I think early on when we were, and you have to understand this is late nineties, you know, first draft of this was 1997. So there was always going to be two or three people who didn't understand why uh, who actually, uh, if I'm being unkind, um, don't understand what dramatic action is and, you know, believe that it's all about a certain sort of um, pat conflict. In this case, you know, what, why wouldn't this woman feel guilt about her sexuality? And to all of this, I've learned to very calmly say, well, have you ever had guilt about your sexuality? You know, obviously you have guilt about difficult choices you have to make, but, um, and there's certainly lots of obstacles uh, in place for these two, but one of the obstacles isn't, never will be, am I doing the right thing by fancying a woman? Right. <laughs> it's, not really, it's not really what life is about. And I think that is the one thing, well, there are a couple of things, but that's the huge important thing that has been preserved through all the years. It's, and, and I think it's preserved partially because it was developed in a very different way. I mean, this movie wasn't developed in the U.S. by a studio. It was developed in the U.K. by Film 4, which is a British studio, but, you know, it's different. It's just different relationship between creators and material is different. Yeah, because I can imagine there. I mean, there must have been through the years people who were afraid of the themes, or afraid of this or that, or how she should react to the, um, you know, the custody issue with her child, and all these things that people, which makes it so great that you see her as completely human, yeah. with obstacles, but not with with uh, this guilt and anger. We don't have to go through that in the sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The concerns, or its thematic concerns are very much uh, relevant in, in a world, in the world we live in today. You know, people say, well, why a period piece? And I think, well, because in period pieces, you're allowed the freedom to explore really complex, subtle things that in contemporary society, we all believe are past us. <laughs> and they're not. And they never will be. I mean, except for you know, fairly privileged bubbles, pockets of places such as Los Angeles or New York or, um, you know, but the period gives you the license to 
really focus on behavior that is no longer part of our culture in many ways, but in certain other key ways is profoundly with us. Um, I'll make you some coffee. I'm not drunk. You can still come with us. Go back and back. I can't do that. Yes, you can. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to stay here with Abby over Christmas? Are you going to stay with the shop girl in there? Huh? What are you going to do, Carol, huh? What is the plan? Stop it! Damn it! I put nothing past women like you, Carol. You married a woman like me. The movie is just so... It's this amazing subtext going through. Um, I don't know if this is an odd question for a screenwriter, but but how do you write subtext? Are you actually writing, or do you and Todd work together with these glances they have over the table? And, and well, I mean, as far as that goes, there's there's two things that I always have always kept in mind. I mean, um, yes, of course, the, the script is full of scenes in which people are not allowed to say. What they really, what they really want to say, which I suppose is the basis of all subtext. People not saying exactly what they mean, but saying it in another way, um, or taking a beat or a pause at a place where uh, maybe words can't fill a space. So the the script is full of that stuff, and when you've got uh, a collaborator, a group of collaborators in this case, Todd, the actors, the designers, who are all absolutely on the same page about how you tell a story and how you treat a script in which the subtext is allowed to float and is not bludgeoned, then of course that stuff, that stuff multiplies and ripples and people run with things and that's what happened here so yes it is written Mm -hmm. but it's also written in such a way as to allow people to go as far as they can (laughs) with what what they might bring to it you know you know I cannot imagine any two other people doing those roles inhabiting them it's they're, they're nailed. Kate Blanchett is just like something out of a Hitchcock uh, glamour. She's just... Uh, I, well, that's so funny. Yeah, she she really is. I mean, I had no... I never think of actors or living actors when I write anything. I, I mean, that's a... You're on a hiding to nothing there. Um, and it, But the one model I had in mind for Carol in the script was a very specific role of Grace Kelly's, and that was in Rear Window. So it, it was a Hitchcock blonde who, who who was the model for Carol. And I think he's the only other director I'd even love now at this point to contemplate, like, what would Hitchcock's take on Carol have been? <laughs> <laughs> a very different one, and, and I'm glad I've got the one I've got, but, you know, <laughs> there must be... I Smithian elements of uh, Hitchcock's work. And then the other thing is something that Hitchcock always said to people who asked him, you know, how do you, how do you get such tension in your scenes? And he said, well, you know, you should always film your love scenes as if they're murder scenes and your murder scenes as if they're love scenes. Mm. (laughs) That's absolutely how on a very fundamental level, 
the script for Carol was written, basically. Yes, that explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I read that your favorite movie is Sunset Boulevard, which, which is mine as well. Oh, funny. Oh, right. Great. And there's a pretty spectacular female in that one as well. Yes, absolutely. Did you think anything about that one when you were doing Carol? Um, well, I always, yes. The answer is probably yes, because I always think of Sunset Boulevard and I always watch it while I'm working. That and um, All That Jazz are the two movies that I watch a lot when I'm working and um, for very different reasons. But, you know, and I always try to put Sunset Boulevard into everything I do, no matter how inappropriate it might be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like a good luck charm. In this case, it, 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 it felt very appropriate. And that scene in particular that's extracted and, and played in the scene in Carol, I think. Right. Works very well. But yeah, Norma Desmond, what it, what a great character. I want to say they don't they don't make movies about characters like that anymore, do they? One of the best. <laughs> yeah. I'm married to a screenwriter. So and and we talk about there's not a lot of writers block. I mean, the writing seems to come naturally, but there's sort of a, a bullshit block. The the money troubles of getting the film made and the waiting for things to happen and producers saying change this or do that in decades. And this is a project that you've been working on. Uh, for 20 years. How do you stay creative through all that? Well, I mean, I suppose the great advantage here is when something takes 20 years, it's, you know, it's not every single moment of your time is devoted to it. So you have great bursts of activity and false starts. And, you know, after about the first five years of that, you get pretty, not cynical, but pretty, you know, you just shrug when someone says, well, that bit of financing was lost. And you go, right, I think I'll make a cup of tea. <laughs> um, what else is new? And so you get to a point where you don't think it'll ever happen, which is actually quite a good point to be in because you're not as, you're always invested in it, but you no longer expect it to happen. And you can, as I did from time to time, go back to the script and remove the bits that I thought were always a bad idea, but that came from other, you know, discussions of people who are flirting with it or you know, attached in some way. So it sort of worked out to a place where I think, gee, everything should take 18 to 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's this extraordinary amount of incredible women on this project. I mean, yeah, we talked about Todd Haynes, but... but uh, around them, the producers and, and, and um, Christine Vachon and everyone, it, it really is a female-centric production, right? Yeah, it, it mostly is. And um, I, you know, I've known Liz Carlson, who was the real kind of um, guiding force of a producer on this, who I've known her for years. We've worked together before. Um, I also worked with Liz and Christine before on on a, a film I wrote and directed for HBO. And Todd, of course, and Christine um, are, are a formidable pair. But he's also been friendly with um, Liz, good friends for many years. So it felt like the lesson in this is to, um, it, it's when you're embarking on a film like this, which is tricky for all sorts of reasons, and the least of it being that it's about two lesbian women, <laughs> um, it, 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 it is a good idea to know who you're working with because 
there's a greater chance of it working out well in the end if everyone is aware of everyone else and is uh, simpatico aesthetically and in various other ways. But it's something that rarely, I think, happens. And I was just reading in the big New Yorker um, expose about women in, in, in the industry that, that people just have this idea that women-centered films don't make any money, which I think you're proving wrong. <laughs> yeah, Carol is, is going to um, uh, disprove that. It already is. Um, but as it as it uh, goes wider in the states and uh, and and is released internationally, um, I really really hope people take note. Um, but that's really all you can do is hope they take note. And if three other films that are female driven and of, of and of quality uh, dramas, I'm talking about. I mean, there's always a market for female buddy comedies and such, but. I hope if three more movies get made like this, and that's that's what you do, and you create an effect, perhaps, and the next year six get made, and then when one of them bombs, we're back to you know square one. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully not. So, what do you think Patricia would have said about your finished movie? I wonder if she'd be as uh, disapproving as she she was of all the rest of them, but. There's a part of me that thinks she would have liked it and would have appreciated the renewed recognition um, of her work that, that the movie is, is, is clearly giving her already and the book. And I know she would have fallen in love with Kate Blanchett. So I think that would have, <laughs> that would have trumped every reaction. You know? And she would have been quite chuffed to see Rooney Mara basically portraying herself. (laughs) Because the book, the novel, she released the novel without the pseudonym before she died, correct? Yeah, she she retitled it Carol, and she put her own name on it, yes. And I don't think she was ready for a very long time to do that. And then, I suppose in the late 80s, when she, I think there was a critic, I think it was Terrence Rafferty, who wrote a very long appreciation of her work in The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, um, people were interested again. And I think she thought, okay, I can finally, I can finally do this. As Bloomsbury, her British publisher, asked her to put her own name on, on The Price of Salt. So I, I, I hope she would appreciate at least what it's doing for her. If he can't have me, I can't see my daughter. Everything comes full circle. And when it happens, I want you to imagine me there to greet you. Carol, I miss you. We gave each other the most breathtaking of gifts. I will not negotiate anymore. I want it, and I will not deny it. Would you? And now you're going into award season. Is it is it crazy? Um, yeah, it's, it's fairly crazy. 
Um, it's, <laughs> uh, but you know, it's it's better to be um, in this position than in a position where people are not seeing the movie and not talking about it. So, well, I can't wait for your Oscar speech. I think it's going to. Oh be. God! <laughs> Hi, Smithian. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking your time, and and congratulations again. This was very interesting and so much fun. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much to Phyllis Naj, and good luck during awards season. Go see Carol wherever you are. It premieres here in Sweden on December 25th. It's out in theaters in the U.S. and the U.K. So um, go check out the listings wherever you may be. And uh, keep in touch with me, for example, on Twitter, at PodPopCulture. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Boy, produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. See you next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.